Many years ago, there was a, a, a film that came out that looks kind of, well, back in our day, it seemed like, you know, up to the date and real classy. Now when you go back and watch some of those old films, they seem a little bit hokey. But um, there was a film, James Bond film, it's called Goldfinger. Maybe many of you have seen that one. Well, there was a guy named Goldfinger, and there's a Goldfinger guy in the Bible. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, the gold-fingered man. And we're going to find him in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, the gold-fingered man. Now, of course, it profits us well if we look to the entire uh, scope of the book of James in order to get the setting in which he's speaking. We don't want to just dive right into a verse uh, and try to establish our point, it helps if we know what James has been talking about, what, what is his topic, what, what is he directing his, these readers to, and what is he trying to say to them. Now, one of the first things we want to look at is just right there in verse 1. He's a servant of the Lord, and he's writing to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And those twelve tribes we take to be uh, well, first of all, maybe an indication of how early this epistle was written. Most agree that this was probably the first letter written after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what's in debate is just exactly how early it was written. I think there are some strong arguments that it can be, could have been written as much as just as little as a few months or a year later, no more than maybe two years later after the resurrection of Christ and the forming of the church. And some of those indicators I think we find here in this epistle, this being one of them, that he is simply writing to the twelve tribes. He is not writing in, in to Gentiles here. He's writing to Jewish Christians. And we'll see another indicator later on as we move through this epistle. Then he begins, the very first thing that he opens his letter with is the subject of trials and testings. And he tells them that they should consider it or count it to be a joy to enter into trial. And as he proceeds through this, he ends up in uh, verse uh, 12 with this man. He said this man or this uh, person, this individual, when he has uh, endured temptation or testing, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So the purpose and goal and outcome of this testing here is for the crown of life. And if we were to look closely at this phrase, crown of life, in Greek, you would find that it actually says the crown of the life. And any time you find that article before the word life, and it's the Greek word zoe, you can be sure he's talking about messianic life. He's talking about the life to come in the future. That's what he's speaking to. And so for participation in and receiving a crown related to that life, he says, requires going through trials. But then he says also in verse 12, as a part of that process, when he is tried or literally approved, when he has been tested and found to be approved, then he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. 
Then he talks about the losing of that, the possibility, giving in to temptation, following your lust, which results in sin, which ultimately results in death. Or you might as just as easily have said there, loss of the crown. So when you experience sin in your life and you succumb to it, The end result, he says, is death or loss of the crown of life. Then he goes on to talk about the gift that God has given us and uh, verses 17 and 18. And then following that, he moves just like every other New Testament writer. He speaks very briefly of the free gift of life and then quickly moves into the responsibilities that that are upon us. Once we have taken Christ as our Savior, then things begin to happen. And things should begin to happen in our life as a Christian. And so he talks about those things. And he talks about the process being receiving the engrafted word or the rooted word which is able to save your souls. And so the saving of the soul then is contingent upon our reception of the word. This word taking root in our lives. Or as he expresses it, looking into the law of liberty. You look into it, you turn away, it produces nothing. But if you turn uh, into the law of liberty, you look into it and you consider what it says concerning your, your own self and my relationship to it, and I respond appropriately considering God's ways and I follow his ways, he said then it produces the desired result. And then I can be sure of what God has for me. And he speaks about that concerning uh, those things in verses 25, 26, 27, talking about pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. He says, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Now that doesn't mean visit the fatherless and widows when they have afflictions. It means in their affliction. That is, in their affliction of being fatherless or an orphan. Or in their affliction of being a widow. So you don't have to worry about when I should do this. When should I visit the fatherless? When should I visit the widow? You don't have to question that. Because if they're a widow, they are in their affliction. If they're an orphan, they are in their affliction. And it's incumbent upon us in practicing pure religion, he says, to visit them in that condition. Then, quickly in chapter 2, he moves into another topic. But don't think that they're not related. They are connected. My brethren, he says, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now that sounds like, and it is, on the surface, a difficult verse to understand. And... uh, I want us to note the first thing here in this verse. Notice, well, first, the Lord of glory. And you'll see that the words the Lord are in italics. So it's not there in Greek. And then you'll see the words of glory. And whenever you see that word of, generally speaking, you should consider it to be what's in grammar called the genitive. A genitive, when I say something is of, or when anybody says something is of something, then that talks about possession. So when you say, I am a member 
of Community Baptist Church, well, then that shows possession. That, that shows who belongs to Community Baptist Church and who is the possessor there. You are members of. Or if you say, I am of the lineage and descent of the Smiths or the Richardsons or whatever other name you come up with, then that shows possession. That shows who your heritage belongs to, who, of which lineage you are of. Well, when you talk about the of glory here, and I don't know grammar well enough to describe it to you, other than to say it's in an unusual position here. And it's given translators and expositors difficulties in trying to determine just what the genitive refers back to. So it could be one of two things. It could refer back to the Lord. Well, that's how the authorized version translators dealt with it here. The Lord of glory. But some feel that it could refer back to the object of faith. And personally, I think that's where it belongs. And I'm going to try to show you that why as we proceed through this passage here. But one of the things... Well, let me just read to you a translation here from... um, Robert Young, who is the author of Young's Literal Translations, very popular and very well known, and he translates it this way. He says, my, now notice the difference here. He says, my brethren, hold not in respect of persons the faith of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ or of our Lord Jesus Christ. The faith of the glory. So we want to ask ourselves, in either case, whether it's the glory of the Lord Jesus or whether it's the faith of the glory of our Lord Jesus, what is he talking about when he's talking about the glory then? Because obviously it's very central to this verse here. It's central to the the very thing that he is introducing here and going to talk to these uh, 12 tribes Uh, that are scattered abroad, what he's going to talk to them about and what he wants them to understand. So to deal with that very briefly, and and I've I've done this before, but I think it bears repeating. So let's turn, keep your finger there, of course, in James, and let's go over to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. And I am trying to go slow. (laughs) She's here today. (laughs) The other day she said, said it and left, but she's right on the front row. Make sure you allow time, Dad, so they can turn to that passage. So I'm doing it. In Matthew chapter 19, you have the account of the rich young ruler. And we're going to turn down to verse 27 and verse 28. Verses 27 and 28. Now, having introduced this, and we won't take the time to go through it now, but Peter simply asks a question. He said, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee, What shall we have therefore? Now, the rich young ruler had come asking a question about having eternal life, or as we find in Mark's account and Luke's account, inheriting eternal life or messianic life. Inheriting eternal life is one thing, but the gift of eternal life is something entirely different. The gift comes freely, the inheritance does not. The inheritance always has conditions attached to it. So consequently, when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, give away your possessions and follow me, we find that he didn't do so. 
He went away sorrowful, it says, for he had great possessions. But then Peter, observing this, says, but we didn't do that, Lord. We, we, we disciples, we apostles here, we did do that very thing. We did give up all to follow you. What are we going to have therefore? Peter understood the issue of inheritance. Peter understood that inheritance with conditions to it meant that if we have done this, there's something in it for us. And so he asked the Lord what it would be. Verse 28, he gives him the answer. He said, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me, that is, followed me as disciples in the regeneration or the making of all things new, speaking of the time when Jesus would come back to rule the earth, the messianic era, the renewing, some translations put it in there as the renewing of all things. He says, When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, then you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, he makes it very clear. This is something yet future. This is, you know, Jesus is not sitting on a throne of glory right now. This is a throne that is to be occupied in the future. Now, turn, hold your finger here at Matt, where you're at, but just turn a page or two over to Matthew 25. <coughs> in Matthew 25, we see another expression of this where uh, the Lord says in verse 31, Matthew 25 and verse 31, he, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory. Alright, so when the Son of Man comes, that will be the time when He comes in His glory. But notice what it says then. And all the holy angels with Him, then shall He do what? Sit upon the throne of His glory. He will occupy a throne. He will sit on it. And it will be His. And he will rule from that throne. Now, of course, we understand that presently another occupies that throne. Satan is currently the ruler of this world, the prince of this age. And there's coming a day when he will be removed from that throne and the Lord Jesus Christ will take that throne himself to rule the earth. Now, with that in mind, back to... Back to where you're holding your finger there in Matthew. But we're going to look at the next chapter. Chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and look at verse 21. Now here is this uh, a section where um, dealing with rank or position in the kingdom. And um, just look at verse 21. Well, I guess we better read verse 20. Verse 20 says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, in verse 21, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. So when you come to rule, Lord, in your kingdom... I would like to request that you place my sons on your right and on your left. These are positions, see, in the kingdom, positions of authority. Now, having said that, 
You can leave your finger there now and go. And let's turn over to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, you have a a parallel reference to the same account. And look at verse 37. Mark chapter 10 and verse 37. There it says, They said unto him, Grant us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand. Where? In thy glory. In thy kingdom and in thy glory are equated. They're the same. The Son of Man will sit on a throne in his kingdom. The Son of Man will sit on a throne in his glory. They mean equally the same thing. So now, I told you to keep your finger in James. Let's go back over to James chapter 2. So, when we look at this passage here, now you remember now, you know, how long was Jesus alive upon the earth in conducting his public ministry? Approximately three and a half years. And during this time, he's teaching his disciples. About a year or two later, this letter is written. This letter is not far removed, see, from the teaching of Christ. Fresh on his minds, on the minds of his disciples and his apostles. Look at what he says there again in verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of what? Of glory. The reference here has to do with the Lord's glory when he comes to sit on his throne. That is what the New Testament, the entire New Testament, is geared to. It is looking forward to. It is progressing towards that day when Jesus Christ will sit upon that throne. And there he calls him the Lord of glory. Or, if we take it as uh, Robert Young translated it and says, have not or hold not in respect of persons the, the faith of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in directing this to these readers of these 12 tribes, he's telling them, those of you, he's addressing to a specific group, who hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In other words, those of you who are in holding your faith, looking to the future, to that future glory, When the Lord will sit upon his throne, he's saying to you to practice partiality, he says, is wrong. It's a sin, as a matter of fact. We find out a few verses later. And those words, you know, literally, respect of persons, it's actually respect of faces. So in other words, when one walks into the congregation, of course, the first thing we do and the the way we primarily recognize people is by the face. And for us to react to that person based on who they are, he says is wrong. Now, verse 2. He gives us an illustration, an example of what could happen. If there should come into your assembly, and by the way, that's interesting to me. This is another place where it tells me or hints to me that this 
letter was probably written early on, very early, because it's the word for synagogue. It's not ecclesia, which we commonly understand to mean assembly or is translated church throughout the New Testament uh, in most places. But rather here, it's the word for synagogue. They didn't, you know, early, early on. Now, and by the way, it doesn't mean synagogue necessarily a Jewish synagogue. A synagogue also was just could be a meeting place, a place where you could go meet. This could be a synagogue. It's just a place where people came to assemble together. And so he's telling them, these who hold the faith of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come together to meet together, as we have this morning, he says, and a man with a gold-fingered, a gold-fingered man, a man with a gold-fingered ring, or a gold ring, should come into your assembly. And he also has on goodly apparel. And there also comes in a man, he says, a poor man in vile raiment. Then he says, and ye have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under thy footstool. Are you not then being partial? Aren't you showing partiality when you do that? Now when he talks about goodly apparel, that word goodly just means bright, flashy, um, gorgeous, gorgeous apparel. Or, uh, well, it's interesting. Turn back over there in verse 3, when he says gay clothing. It's interesting to me the way the King James translators do this, but it's exactly the same words as you find over in verse 2, goodly apparel. It's goodly apparel and gay clothing. They're the same. Or, let's turn back to Luke for a second. Hold your finger there now in in James, because we will come back. Look over at Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, and verse 11, Christ is, uh, the Lord Jesus is um, before Herod here, and the chief priests and the scribes, it says in verse 10, stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in gorgeous robe, or in a gorgeous robe. Well, that, those words, gorgeous robe, they're the exact same words again. They could have just as well said they arrayed him in gay clothing, or they dressed him in uh, goodly apparel, using the same, same expression, and sent him again to Pilate. Now, I, I, I think it's important to read that verse there and point that out because these words here, oftentimes, and just as they do here in James and just as they do here in relationship to the Lord Jesus, have a connection with ornate dressing. Not salad dressing, but dressing when we put clothes on. You know, The kind of dressing that we fancy ourselves up with so we look good. We all want to have, we hope, Goodly apparel. Now, 
Another interesting thing here I think that's well worth pointing out for us is just who it is and that, that, that is that he's really pointing the finger at here. Because I'm afraid that we often have the tendency here to think that the guilty party here is the rich. Because he later on talks about the rich dragging you into judgment seats and so on. And you have to be very careful when he's talking about the rich and the poor here and exactly what he means and who he's talking about. So let's read on for just a moment here. In verse 4, where we left off, he says, In this situation, he says, Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts or judges with evil thoughts? Hearken. Okay? Or some translations just say, Listen. In other words, James is about ready to speak to this problem here, to this issue. Here's the situation in your assembly when you come together. You're showing partiality. When a person of distinction walks in the, in the door and he has goodly apparel on or she has goodly apparel on, you tend to move them over to a place of honor. He says when you set them in a good place, you've set them in an honorable position, like on the front row here. Or maybe I guess if it's a Baptist church, an honorable position, maybe on the back row. <laughs> I don't know. But wherever it would be, it's in, a, it's in a place of prominence, a place of position, as opposed to the poor person here who is being put in a lowly position. He's either left to stand off to the side somewhere, or he says, sit down here at my footstool. Certain ones, you see, had prominent seats, and they had them sit in a lowly position. Matter of fact, the actual word means beneath my footstool. So it means very low. It was a poor place to be. It was definitely not a position of honor and privilege. And so to do that, he says, then, is partiality. But listen, he said, listen. My beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith? Or if we understand more literally, that word where it says, of this world, it's not the word of, it's the word to. It's literally to this world. Have we not, or has not God chosen the poor to this world, rich in faith? Now, however you want to take this, whether it's the people of the world recognizing that those of faith are poor, or whether the poor have chosen to be poor to this world. You understand the difference? If I, make, if I make my choice to be poor to this world, it means I've followed the other New Testament injunctions to separate myself from this world, to have no part with the things of this world. Because my sight, my faith, my goal is set on the world to come. Or as the Bible describes it, the age to come. Or as the rich young ruler understood it, eternal life. Only there, if we understand what the word eternal means, it means literally the age to come life or life for the coming age, then we understand that the rich young ruler 
understood that just as much as the, the people that James is writing to. They were talking about that age to come and separating yourselves from the world now so that I might enjoy the life to come in the coming age. So he's not necessarily talking about giving up my material possessions. He is talking about becoming poor to this world. We could just look at it in a very simple way. I mean, just well, let me. It's just like in Matthew chapter 19 with the rich young ruler. You know, when when he says it's hard for the rich to to enter the kingdom of God. You know, I remember when I used to look at that verse and I thought, well, you know, when you think equate that whole idea with meaning get saved, I would read that verse and I thought, well, it's not hard for rich people to get saved. I mean, I know several. Don't know them close enough. Wish they did. <laughs> but it's not that hard. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's not difficult. Rich people can do that. Poor people can do that. <laughs> but when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to inheriting, and you remember we said with inheritance there are conditions attached to that, it's not free, then with inheriting eternal life, there's something else altogether. And that's why the rich young ruler turned and walked away. See, he didn't want to separate himself to this world and give up the present possessions that he had. It wasn't just the fact that he was rich that was the problem. As a matter of fact, if you read this very carefully here, you find that it's just as equally well for a rich person to be poor to this world. Go back, hold your finger here again, and let's turn back to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> now, John the Baptist and Jesus had just come on the scene in chapter 4. And they had a message that they were preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. That was the Gospel message. And if you were to uh, just do some comparisons, and you don't have to do this, but I just want to read a verse. Look over to uh, Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you look at verse 14, he says uh, that Jesus went about preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. That was his good news. He was preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. And so, then following that, many people, it says, came and followed Jesus. For instance, in chapter 4, verse 19, he saith unto them, follow me. In verse 20, it says, they followed him. And then in verse 21, he, uh, he found uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, mending their nets, and he called them. And it says in verse 22, they followed him. And then Jesus went about all the area of Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In verse 25, And there followed him great multitudes. You see, this is not believing here. It doesn't say, And many believed on Jesus here. It says, Many followed him. To follow him means you must have believed him. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, we have what we call commonly the Beatitudes, this section of teaching which Jesus gave 
concerning this gospel which he was preaching, this gospel of the kingdom. And notice immediately then how he opens it up in the very first, uh, the very first things he, he uttered in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking here about the one who is poor in spirit, not the one who is poor with material possessions, but the poor in spirit. That could be anybody. And so when we turn back to James chapter 2, where you hope you had your fingers there still there, when he's talking about the poor to the world, I think he's talking about the same people that Jesus was talking about, those who are poor in spirit, those who have a humble, surrendered attitude towards Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a mindset. It's a decision. It's a determination on your part that I'm going to not go the way of the world, that I am going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am going to identify with Him, and when I do, it's going to show up. People are going to know who my identification is with. And so then when He says, has not God chosen the poor to this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom. And notice what He says there following heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him. Well, who did James already tell he would give the crown of life to back in chapter 1 and verse 12? To the same ones. Which he has promised, he says in verse 12, to them that love him. It is a condition of the heart. It is a condition of the inward man and the person as to whom is going to be an inheritor in the kingdom and whom Jesus calls rich in faith. It's that person who is rich in faith. And that can be the materially rich or the materially poor. You see, the one who is materially rich and the one who is materially poor can, be, can have no faith at all or be weak in faith and have no faith in the Lord of glory. Or the faith of the Lord of glory. As Young gives it to us in his translation. And so what I'm trying to point out here. James is very consistent in what he's been teaching. Beginning in chapter 1. Here in chapter 2. That the person who is poor in spirit. The person who is poor to this world. It is that person who is loving the Lord Jesus Christ who will be and are considered to be rich in faith and who will be heirs of the kingdom and to them alone and not to anyone else. Now, continue on. Oh, but might we remind ourselves here. What did he say about partiality, though? In other words, that is the people, this is the group to whom James is writing, and yet in their midst... If you succumb to that rich person, that one dressed in goodly apparel, and we've got a couple here today, dressed in goodly apparel, who walk in and you seat them in a prominent position, then you are guilty of sin. You have shown partiality. And he, he calls it sin a little later on here. So in verse 6, he says, You have despised the poor. 
Do you understand what he's saying? I, 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 need, that, I need that one where I can walk around now. Do you understand that, that thing, you know? Do you understand what he's saying that is happening within the congregation that when that rich person walks in and you show preference to him and you have a congregation full of people who are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have chosen to be poor in spirit with respect to this world, and then you turn around and show that person prominence, you've just shamed everybody else. You've despised them. And you've done wrong, he says. And that's not the way it should be. Now, it happens, but that's not the way it should be. Well, he retreats to a practical thing now. He says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Now, when he says rich men draw you, he's making a comparison now between those who are holding to the faith of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, "Don't aren't these rich people the very ones that will haul you into court, into the judgment seats? And, of course, we know what Paul said about believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, carrying believers to court. But in this case, it was somebody outside the fellowship, dragging them off to court. That's what that word draw you before the judgment seats means. Basically, it means grabbing you by the nap of the collar there and just dragging you off the court. In verse 7 he says, well then, in that situation, do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? Well, of course, what answer would we expect there? We would expect the answer of yes. Well, of course that's what they're doing. In verse 8, it's the same. Uh, it's the same. Excuse me, in verse 7 and verse 8, those questions demand the answer of yes. Of course, you would say that's what they're doing. So in verse 9 then, he says, or verse 8 rather, look at the contrast. If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture. So this is what he's defining now. This is what he's telling us the royal law is. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Then what? You do well. That is held up to and against showing partiality within the fellowship of believers. If you show love to your neighbor as you do to yourself, but see, if you show partiality to that gay, gay apparelled person, that goodly apparelled person, then you haven't shown love to your neighbor. And as a matter of fact, then he says in verse 9, but if you have respect to them, you commit sin. If you have respect to the face of a person who walks in, and you treat them that way, then you've committed sin. And that, he says, is wrong. But if you will practice love to your neighbor and treat them in an egalitarian manner, then he says you do well. But you do so, he says, according to the royal law. I like that word, that word royal there. You know, that, the root of that word is just right from the word basilea, where we get the word kingdom. And it means, it means simply, if you fulfill the kingly law or the regal law. In other words, this kingly law, this regal law in the sight of God, 
is all wrapped up and fulfilled in this one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. As a matter of fact, you know, let's turn back, hold your finger in, in James again, and if you go back to Leviticus chapter 19 and to verse 18, we'll find here amidst the, the giving of the law concerning the, the life of the people under the covenant relationship with Jehovah, that is, as God's people having been delivered from the land of Egypt, they have now surrendered to the covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ at Mount Sinai, and He's instructing them now on how they are to live and walk before Him. Then in verse 18 He says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this represents the regal kingly law. This is not the law according to the world. This is not the law according to the, th the way men teach law. This is not the law according to the way a king of the earth or the king of the nations of the earth would practice his regality. But Jesus says, that's the way it is in my kingdom. And if you want to hold to the faith of the glory, the future glory, and matter of fact, one translator even, even supplied the word with the understanding it that it's the faith of the future glory of the Lord, which is to come. If you're holding to that faith, that is, by holding to that faith, you're saying, I have a desire to inherit the life to come. I have a desire to participate with the Lord Jesus Christ in the life to come, and you have that desire, then you need to learn that in my kingdom, this is how you're going to operate then. You're going to operate with love towards your neighbor, just as you would yourself. Now that's the standard. That's how you do it. How do I determine what love to my neighbor is? Well, then ask yourself how you would treat yourself in a given situation. And how you would treat yourself, he says, then that's how you treat your neighbor. And that is the guiding principle, the guiding regal law of being a king under the Lord Jesus Christ is to love your neighbor as yourself. But you don't do that if you follow respecting the face of a person and giving regard to that one and showing preferential treatment, then he says you've committed sin and you don't do well. But if you follow the royal law, he says, then you do well. Verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of the whole thing. So he's talking about believers here. He's talking about Christians who fail. Even in one area, you fail the whole thing. So you must maintain that principle then of loving your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to talk about some examples about adultery and murder and so on. And in verse 12, he says, So speak ye and so do. In other words, you practice these things as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Why do we want to do this? Because there's coming a day when you will stand before the judge and your life will be put under the examination light 
to see just exactly how you have operated as one of those who said they had or held to the faith of the hope or the faith of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And given that understanding now, given that understanding of what is to happen and the judgment that is to come, he says in verse 13, to sum this up then, he says, with respect to judgment, you shall have judgment without mercy. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. That is the principle by which the Lord will conduct his judgment upon you and I. If I have been a person to show mercy, he'll show me mercy. If I have not shown mercy to others, and I said, Hop, bam, the letter of the law. This is what the rule states. This is what the law says. And this is what we're going to go by. And you don't care how you hurt that person or whatever. Then when you stand before the Lord, that's exactly how he's going to judge you. But look what he says. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Or, as another expressed it, mercy triumphs over judgment. Or, or another way you could express it, mercy trumps judgment. In other words, if I have followed this principle of loving my neighbor as myself and shown that person mercy, then the Lord Jesus Christ will show me mercy at his judgment seat. And if I have committed wrong, you know, and, and, and I've messed up, goofed, done whatever, you know, whatever else, other expression we want to use to describe in our walk with the Lord as I come to his judgment seat, you know, it's possible entirely because of how you lived your life in showing mercy, then that he will show you mercy at his judgment seat. But I want us to see that in all of this here, in discussing the rich and the poor, that he was talking primarily about the poor in spirit. He was talking primarily about those poor in spirit being those who were the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who were seeking a place in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as being equivalent terms in this case or seeking positions of co-ruling with the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory then, he says, this is the way you do it. This is how you practice it. So, just as the Lord said in another place to a rich young lawyer, go and do thou likewise. But I'm saying it to me too. Hey, Alan, I wish you knew how convicting these things are when you study it and then when you turn right around and preach it. Sometimes I feel like I'm just up here going, beating out, <laughs> slapping myself silly. But this is for everybody. It's for all of us. If we are all going to make it there, and when I say make it there, I don't mean make it to heaven. You are, we're all going to do that. I mean make it to a successful completion of the race of the Christian life so that we might win the prize and obtain the goal of our faith, which is a sharing of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, a share in his future rule over the earth then we need to obey the principles. We need to determine that I am going to submit myself to the authority of Jesus Christ and begin to practice these very things. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, 
How we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ. And I thank you especially for the the continuity and and the beauty of your word and, and how you've revealed yourself to us, how you've taught us to do these things and that you've left no stone unturned, that this thing about the Christian life is not an impossibility. It's simply obedience to you. And that when we obey, when we believe your word and determine to obey it, then you will empower us to live that life and to do so in a manner that is well-pleasing unto you. Father, we pray for those here who have a need and and, um, desire to come this morning. We pray that you'll strengthen them, and um, we pray that you'll bless them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We'll sing a hymn, just a brief hymn of invitation. If you have a need uh, that you'd like to come forward for, if you just want to come and pray, or, or if the whole pew wants to join this church, we don't care. Just come one, come all. Brother Bob, number 349. <clears throat> Thank you. God bless you. We'll be dismissed.